2: Welcome to the Lizarle Wellbeing Show. I'm Lizarle, and I will be speaking with leading experts and familiar faces from the whole world of well-being to bring you wellness wisdom you can truly trust. From fitness to gut health, mood to menopause, you'll quickly learn how to spot a gem of wellness wisdom. From a passing fad. Now I've just had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Daniel Levitin. Now he's a neuroscientist, cognitive psychologist, and best selling author of books, including The Organized Mind and This Is Your Brain on Music. He joined me to discuss his latest book, The Changing Mind, a Neuroscientist Guide to Aging Well. It's a truly eye-opening read that challenges our assumptions about the ageing process, including beliefs about memory loss and our misguided focus on lifespan over health span. We took a whistle-stop tour through the things that we all need to be aware of if we want to age joyously, from essential hormones to sabotaging sugars, blue light-emitting gadgets to brain-boosting exercises. So stay tuned to the end as he reveals how meditation can trigger physical changes in our brains. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on all this and more on Instagram after the show. Don't forget, if you'd like to watch our chat, you can now find full video podcasts over on the Lizard Wellbeing YouTube channel. And so without further ado, let's get into the episode. So Dan, welcome. (laughs) It's so great to have you here.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: And I know this is a special day because your book, we're recording it, your book has literally just come out.
0: That's right. So it came out this morning.
2: Fantastic. Well, congratulations. And it's genius. And before we get into the whole brain health discussion, can we talk a little bit about your background? Because you started as a music producer. I did. Which was a big switch. So tell me about your journey. I'm fascinated.
0: Uh, well, I dropped out of uh, MIT where I was studying neuroscience and mathematics Okay. in order to join a succession of punk rock and <laughs> new wave bands. As you do, yes, yeah, as, as one does, and uh, then uh, started getting interested in the studio side of things. Um, I figured that I, if I was in one band, all my eggs were in that basket. But if I was producing and engineering records, mm. uh, you know, there were five or ten projects yeah. that I was involved in. Maybe one of them would would go somewhere.
2: So you worked with Stevie Wonder. I did. Yeah,
0: and uh, it was a really it was a really wonderful time. And um, when I got to my mid-30s, my cohort of people, the men and women who had come up in, the, in studios in the record business with me, we all saw that the record industry was collapsing. Mm-hmm. And we figured we didn't want to stop making music, but we should have a backup plan.
2: Is that with the rise of digital then? Was that what was changing it? Or
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And and the consolidation of record companies, meaning there was less choice, less consumer choice and less risk taking on the part of the labels. Mm. When I entered the business, there were 17 major labels in the U.S. And when I left, there were five.
2: So the whole industry was changing.
0: Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of my friends went uh, to law school. He became an attorney with the Environmental Protection Agency in the Clinton administration. He now uh, works in uh, Hong Kong, where he's working to, for legislation to help control climate change. Mm. Another friend became a NASCAR pit mechanic, you know, race cars, you're changing right. tires and stuff. Another friend went into video production. You know, we all went to do different things. And so I went back to college to finish that degree I had never gotten.
2: In neuroscience?
0: Yes. Mm. And then kept. I liked being in college. I didn't stop producing records. I kept going. In fact, the Stevie Wonder record that you mentioned I did while I was still in graduate school. Gosh, I fun. mean, after I, had, after I had not left the business, but, you know, changed yeah. my fo- the focus of how I was spending my time. Yeah. And in an interesting full circle, years later, when I was a professor and training graduate students, I had a graduate student who had been Prince's recording engineer. <laughs> and at 50, she wanted to change careers. And so she entered my lab to get a doctoral degree, a Ph.D., and uh, she had recorded Purple Rain and Little Red Corvette and When Doves Cry, all those big records. And two years into her four-year PhD program, she said, uh, I need to ask you if I can have a month off because the Bare Naked Ladies, who at the time were one of the top bands in, in Canada, they, uh, they want me to produce their next record.
2: Is there a connection then with neuroscience and sound? I mean, do you think there is that, that link? that interesting link?
0: Well, there can be. Um, I spend some of my time studying the neuroscience of sound, of language mm. and music. Uh, more generally, I study the neuroscience of memory and creativity. Uh, sound is just one way to use as a window to these things. Yeah. But I think um, an interesting thing is that uh, most of my friends are songwriters and musicians. Uh, a few of them are scientists. But there are these striking similarities. Sound engineers, producers, songwriters are experimenting. Mm. Scientists experiment. Uh, yeah. The the metric we use to evaluate the results of an experiment is different. Mm. But there's a lot of play and a lot of uh, very great precision required. If your guitar is out of tune by just a hundredth, or two hundredths of a percent, you know, everybody's going to hear it. And uh, w- when you're recording, if you're off by what m- might seem a little bit of level, uh, suddenly, you know, somebody's going to be talking, and then, we're gonna... you know, you yeah. just three decibels, uh, which is the threshold of recognition. Fascinating. So, yeah, there's a precision that applies to both. Yeah.
2: But your research really moved quite quickly into the aging brain. Is that right? And how we age, and memory, and cognitive function as we age.
0: Yeah, but uh, in in a bro- in the broadest sense, uh, I was interested always in the lifespan. Right. When we talk about aging, we tend to think decrepitude and eighty year olds, mm. but really we start aging the day we're born. Sure. Uh, and hopefully you keep aging. I mean, because yeah.
2: It, that's aging. what we're working on. <laughs> well, I mean,
0: aging is, is my favorite alternative to dying.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine too. <laughs> and do you develop strategies then for aging well and for keeping our brain health? Because I think well, there's so much talk, isn't there, now about Alzheimer's and dementia. And as we live longer, the specter of this looms larger.
0: Yeah. So to give you a window into what I do, uh, there, there are two kinds of uh people in, in, in science, broadly speaking, um, there are people who do applications of science and looking for therapies. They work with clinical populations, such as people in rest homes, senior living facilities. They work with Parkinson's patients, mm-hmm. and they're either looking for new therapies or new drugs based on what we know about the underlying science, That's one kind. The other kind is what I would call a basic scientist, somebody who doesn't really know where their research is going to take them. Mm. They're just trying to figure out how it all works. How does this connect to that and what makes it connect to that? Mm -hmm. And by connecting, I would take neurons. Why is it that um, when we speak, this network of brain circuits becomes active uh, what causes that activation, how do the neurons signal each other. So I'm in the latter mm-hmm. camp. I study the basic science. And um, it's up to other people to actually try and figure out how it could be used. Yeah. But I'm interested in it. And so what I've done in this book and in the uh, organized mind is served as a sort of amalgamator of the cutting edge of what's going, the front lines of what's going on on uh, on therapies and mm. and healthy living practices,
2: mm-hmm.
0: based on the underlying science. So, you know, the, as you know, the first part of the book is just the science. Yeah. How does memory work? Yeah. How do personalities influence the course of our lives? And then the second part are the tips, as how to change it or how to influence yeah. it, or so, what changes to make. Okay. But I, I, as you know, you're in this space very prominently and effectively, people are more likely to stick with something if they understand why they're doing it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You talk there about memory. Is it true that uh, we lose our memory as we age? This whole thing about the failing memory and people saying, oh, I'm having a senior moment. You know, it's like, oh, I can't remember that now.
0: Well, there's no scientific evidence that that happens uh, to most people. Uh th- Examples of someone with memory failure are used in the media, and mm. it's the subject of jokes, and, and yeah. they're in films, and the doddering old person is kind of a, a joke, but the reality is most of us will not lose our memory, mm-hmm. and uh, we can go through our 80s and 90s without any memory impairment or without noticeable memory impairment.
2: And are there things that we can do that will help prevent that then? Because some people do definitely seem to be less sharp. What causes that loss of sharpness?
0: Well, in many cases, Liz, it's just sleep deprivation. Really? Sleep is uh, required in order for your memory to function properly. We go through five stages of sleep. They're distinct neurochemical stages.
2: Okay, talk talk us through the five stages then.
0: Well, different chemicals are released in in the different stages. One of them is famous called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, which is when you're dreaming. Mm -hmm. Um, During stage four sleep, there's a chemical called acetylcholine Mm. that's released. And it uh, takes the experiences that happened to you in the previous day and it processes them. It helps you to relate what happened to you today to other things that have happened to you. Connect the events to your feelings about them.
2: That's all happening while we sleep.
0: Yeah, and it, it puts them in your memory. If you, if you have your five stages disrupted, but mm. you have to get up a lot. Yeah. Or yeah. if they're shortened or you don't get a good... It, it, it takes 90 minutes to go from phase one to phase five, okay. five on average. So most of us need to have five of these cycles, seven and a half hours sleep. Add a half-hour right. budget or buffer for getting in and out. Right, so eight hours. So eight hours. Uh, okay, some people need nine. If you, if you only had four sleep cycles, yeah. your memory could be impaired for two weeks, especially as you get From one night? Yeah.
2: From one night of four hours sleep?
0: Yeah. <gasps> My goodness. So when we're talking about senior moments, yeah. the fact is older adults uh, sleep more restlessly they get up more. yeah, uh, And um, they often have a harder time getting to sleep or staying asleep. They wake yeah. up at four in the morning. And if we can fix that, and there are ways to do it and, and restore natural sleep, then a lot of the yes. memory impairment oftentimes goes away.
2: That's really fascinating. I've done quite a lot of work with menopause, and obviously, losing estrogen, um, and or having hot flushes and night sweats that will keep you awake, and and the vasomotor symptoms of you know, waking up with a racing heartbeat. So that and men go through this too. Really,
0: uh, it's called andropause. Okay, and men starting at age fifty, on average, have this hormone deprivation, and they get hot flashes and sweats, and they lose cognitive ability, and they become weepy, and. Uh, it's called andropause uh, most men are taught uh, to sort of buck up and not complain yeah. but well, it's real women too. but doesn't it strange that in women it's called menopause yes Really, it should be womenopause women and menopause. Yeah, it's meno, isn't it? Meno and kind of andro.
2: Menstruation and, well, and andro, for,
0: andro for androgen. For androgen.
2: Yeah. So the guys will get over that by replacing testosterone? Yeah. Like and women can replace estrogen?
0: Yeah, and, and there's a misconception that you need testosterone in order to be uh, able to perform sexually. Actually, mm. your testosterone can be low and you can still perform sexually. Right, yeah. The testosterone plays many roles other than yeah. uh, sexual desire and arousal. Yeah. With uh, with low testosterone, men will find that they are, have a hard time waking up, they're foggy headed in the morning, and their immune system is compromised. Testosterone mm-hmm. actually stimulates proper immune system function.
2: And at what age do men start to notice that? Is that really from, from 50 onwards, would you say?
0: Yeah, but you know, with any of these things, we're talking about a bell curve that has long okay. tails. So the average man, if such a man exists, will yeah. experience it fifty. Some at thirty, some at eighty, some never will. So
2: you could have a testosterone test.
0: It's a good idea. Yeah, yeah.
2: Very interesting. And oh, for- I,
0: I also want to add that with almost everything biological, more is not better. Right. There's a, a Goldilocks zone where you get it just right.
2: Okay. So if you're
0: <laughs> thinking, "Oh, I'm just going to take some testosterone because I heard on this on Liz's podcast that you yeah. know I should take it." And women need testosterone too, by the way. Yeah,
2: I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, y-
0: no, you shouldn't just take it because mm. having too much is dangerous yeah. and it fuels cancer. So
2: It's got to be just right. Y-
0: right. You want to have it checked. And, and if you yeah. take a supplement, you want to have it checked again to make sure you mm-hmm. didn't overshoot the mark.
2: Yeah. Now, I don't know how it is in the States. I'd be interested to discover. But for women... Women find it very difficult to get hold of testosterone in this country. It's very, I mean, it's hard enough to get estrogen, but to actually find your GP or a specialist even who is willing to prescribe testosterone. And yet we know that there is this strong link with cognitive function and low mood and, and kind of a clarity, crispness of thought. What's what's it like in the States? Is testosterone something that's that's given to middle-aged women?
0: Well, it depends. Uh, uh... Because in the States, it's, it's bifurcated. There are some people who have great health care and some people who have terrible nice. health care. Well, actually, trifurcated because some people have nice. none. Yeah. Um, and yeah. hormone replacement therapy um, is quite complicated. Mm. and And the doctors know this. I spent, of the four years I spent doing the research for this book and the 4,000 papers I read, mm-hmm. a solid year was spent on trying to understand hormones and hormone replacement therapy. Interesting. I mean, I understood them from my schooling, but trying yeah. to understand what we learned in the last 10 years.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And at the end of reading hundreds of papers, and you know, it, it's, it's my job to read scientific papers and pull out what's real and what's not. That's, that's my job description, right? Mm-hmm. I was completely confused. And fortunately, I have a colleague named Sonia Lupien, in Montreal, mm-hmm. who's one of the world experts on hormones and stress and cognition. Um, she runs a whole laboratory for it. Uh, she's internationally recognized. So very, very busy, of course. So yes. I said, I'll take you out to lunch if I can talk to you about this. <laughs> so we went to my favorite café, Trois Mois et Café, au Montréal. Okay, uh, sounds dans good. Dans la plateau. And uh, <laughs> we, had, uh, we had a petit déjeuner. Nice. And... Uh, I said, I can't make heads or tails of this. Should I be doing this? Should my wife be doing this? Yeah. She says, we don't know. Okay. She said, there are risks, there's mixed results on whether it's riskier to do it or not do it. Mm. And I said, Well, what are you doing? Mm. And she says, I'm taking them. She yeah. says, because from yeah. you know, when we when we talk about health interventions, mm. um, although doctors rarely discuss it. I think the most important aspect of all this is the quality of life calculation that you make.
2: Completely. QOL is just something that is not talked about.
0: And I know you talk about it and you write about it. You've
2: got to look at quality of life.
0: Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you choose quality of life over some risk down the line, but it means you have the information you need to make an informed decision that's right for you. educated decisions,
2: absolutely. People
0: differ in the amount of risks they're willing to take on that's fine. But um, in all of these things, we're kind of kicking, just kicking the can a little farther down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if I improve my quality of life with hormone replacement therapy, I'm raising the risk that I'll have cancer in 10 years. I'm hoping that 10 years from now, cancer therapies mm. will be much improved.
2: Mm. Yeah, well, a lot of those studies were were misinterpreted as well, or oh yeah, the on Women's Health Study, and, and yeah the, nightmare. I'm yeah. glad I'm glad you agree on that.
0: Total nightmare. Yeah, well, yeah. because they 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 weren't. Data were messily collected. They oh, weren't totally. rigorous. Yeah,
2: it was women in their seventies plus who were obese and smoking, and they didn't use yeah. the
0: correct statistics. I mean, the whole thing. Is, oh, uh, let's
2: not even go there because I mean, my listeners and viewers know that that's
0: it's a hot mess.
2: It's a, it's a real a hot, hot flash mess. mess. A yeah. hot flash mess. Oh my goodness! But something actually I wanted to, to touch on before we move away from hormones is I've been looking at some recent research looking at um, Alzheimer's in women. And I hadn't realized that women are twice as likely to get Alzheimer's. And you know, there I is this estrogen connection. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. I, I just thought it was because most women have to live with men. Well, there's that too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there is definitely that too. But there is a growing body of evidence, from what I can see, or at least a, a, a growing opinion, that women should be replacing estrogen for brain health. And, yeah. And for for preventing Alzheimer's. This
0: is this. It's early days in this. Mm. Uh, it. You, it makes sense uh, to yeah. try things that uh, we think might work, mm-hmm. but you know, being aware of the risks. Uh, yeah. It's true that women are twice as likely to get Alzheimer's.
2: And is that because of estrogen? Do you think? I mean, what else could be fueling that? What? How else are we different?
0: You know, I'm I'm sorry to report that we just don't know mm. what causes Alzheimer's. We've thrown a lot yeah. of money at it, a lot of research dollars. I actually had uh, iced tea just a few weeks ago with my friend Stan Prusner, 77-year-old. He runs uh, a huge laboratory at UC San Francisco. Uh, He's got half of a whole building there. He won the Nobel Prize 20 years ago for discovering prions. And his name Ah, might be familiar to your listeners, our listeners, because prions were the way by which mad cow disease...
2: Absolutely, CJD.
0: Right, so Stan thinks that prions are implicated in Alzheimer's and that Alzheimer's is possibly communicable. Mm, That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done. He published a paper on it in October in a prestigious journal, Mm -hmm. Proceedings of the National Academy. For me as a scientist, although I'm somewhat liberal in terms of um, my musical tastes and things Mm -hmm. like that, I'm quite conservative about science in that I don't believe one paper. I don't believe that anything has been established in science until there are 50 papers on it in different labs conducted by scientists who don't have a financial interest in the outcome and all of that. So it's early days. Um, From a risk assessment standpoint, though, uh, the statistics of this, as I talk about in The Organized Mind, Mm. yeah your your chances of getting alzheimer 's are doubled, but your chances are still pretty slim of getting it
1: right.
0: uh, i mean i don't have the numbers handy, but um there are some things that you can do in the realm of hormone replacement therapy, for example, that would increase the risk of certain kinds of cancer mm. by five, but you might go from a one in a million chance of getting it yeah, to a one in two hundred thousand, yeah, so yeah. you know Still but still you, it, tiny, tiny. More likely you'll get hit by a, a, a bus.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And actually that's sort of then balanced by a lowered risk of coronary heart disease or colon well, cancer. Well, all of that, and, right.
0: So these are the conversations yeah. I wish we could have yeah. with our doctors. Yeah. And the only way to do it is to do your research before you go into the doctor. Yes. And you get 10 minutes.
2: Yeah, if, if that even. And
0: yeah. you say, I read this study. I learned about this uh, treatment or this medication. Yes. These are the risks. Can you help me? Yeah. understand the, the actual clinical significance? Mm-hmm. Is it going to make a difference?
2: Mm-hmm. Interesting talking about the Alzheimer's research, because I've heard Alzheimer's also described as type 3 diabetes and being linked to sugar-forming plaques in the brain. What's the connection with sugars there?
0: So there is definitely a connection in animal models. We don't have in very convincing evidence that um, the uh, the production of insulin uh becomes the ability to produce it becomes degraded as we age as we we i wouldn't say we have organ failure but mm. you know we have declines in organ efficiency all our organs uh and ultimately most of us if we don't die of of you know some accident uh will die of of some kind of organ failure the heart goes out yeah the, Pancreas goes out, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cynthia Kenyon, a friend of mine uh, who's now at a top secret lab at Google called Calico, mm, found in worms, the, the famous worm called C. elegans, okay. that when she uh, restricted their sugars, they lived longer. Mm. And we subsequently found in mice and rat models that if you restricted their sugar intake, uh, sugars in particular, yeah. they were less likely to develop Alzheimer's. There are mouse versions of Alzheimer's. They can't find their way around the maze. They forget the maze. Oh, <laughs> okay, what maze? Yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, and so, you know, the idea here. Uh, is that because it works in mice, it might be the same in humans mm-hmm. our physiologies are quite similar, and our genomes are quite similar Are they with mice ninety two percent of our genes in common no
2: way we 're ninety two percent mouse yeah they're
0: ninety two percent us depending yeah. on how you count it i mean <laughs> okay. they, these counts are changing all the time yeah but um uh, and our yeah but the uh and our, our way we match up the genes is changing but yeah it's it 's astonishing uh we have 60% of our genes in common with mushrooms <laughs> because most of what the genes are doing is cellular housekeeping and metabolism yeah. and you know, burning fuel and you know, all this stuff. Uh, but the, the problem is, um, and I have a section in this book about it, the history of translating findings that work in the mouse mm. to humans uh, is characterized by a 95% failure rate. Okay. Uh, right. Right. And often it's not just that the things that worked in mice don't work in humans. They actually are harmful for humans. Two examples of this that people don't know about are fish oil tablets mm-hmm. and vitamin E tablets.
2: Okay, so... Well, I took them for years. Yeah.
0: Everybody said, take vitamin E. Yeah. Vitamin E is an antioxidant. You mm-hmm. need antioxidants. Uh, take Take fish oil. You need the omega-3s. It turns out now... There are the 50 studies that mm-hmm. constitute the proof, and there are meta-analyses. Somebody who comes in and, and you know, takes all the different studies and extracts the commonalities. Yeah. Um, if you get your fish oil through fish, that's beneficial. Yes. You're taking it in the context of all these micronutrients that also exist and facilitate its absorption. You take it all by itself in a tablet. Mm. Uh, it's actually increases your risk of certain kinds of cancers significantly. Really? Same story with vitamin E. Yeah. Natural food sources, yes, but not the tablets.
2: Do you know, it just comes back to this whole idea of cooking from scratch, eating whole food. Absolutely. Not messing around with isolating micronutrients and then taking them out of balance.
0: And I'm sorry to say, uh, I, I, you and I may disagree on this, which is, mm. of course, fine. I, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Go but, on. Uh, there's no superfood. No. I mean, I like acai berries, but they're not going to prevent uh, yeah. Alzheimer's.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I would tend to agree. I mean, I think there are foods that I like to focus on because I think they are more beneficial than others, you know, avocados and kale.
0: Absolutely. Cruciferous vegetables, avocados, yeah. good vegetable fat. Yeah. Uh, but as part of a varied diet. Yes. No, no, uh, for sure. And, you know, I wouldn't focus. Uh, uh, kefir. I've
2: got to have my kefir.
0: Me too. Yeah. Great. Do you have have kefir every morning? I do, and I find it improves my mood.
2: Yes. So why is that?
0: I think that it's the the probiotics, Mm -hmm. uh, helping the uh, flora in the gut establish themselves and stay healthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The various processed foods we eat, uh, even though we try to eat whole foods and home-cooked meals, we end Mm. up...
2: Inevitably. Yeah.
0: Uh, they, uh, and the various germs we come in contact with, they, they disturb the microbiota. And so mm-hmm. the kefir is, is healthful. And 95% of the serotonin in your brain is actually manufactured in the gut. That
2: is fascinating. And serotonin, of
0: course, for those who, who haven't kept up, uh, yeah. is, is the mood-elevating hormone. To make is, us feel a Neurochemical. That, right. So
2: happy gut, happy brain, essentially.
0: Basically, yeah.
2: And that's coming th- from the vagus nerve? Is that being manufactured in the gut and then being whizzed up to the brain through the vagus nerve? Yes. So how quickly can we change our mood, do you think, by having... I mean, if you had a glass of kefir, would you then, five minutes later, be feeling happier?
0: Probably not. I imagine you have to take it for a week or two.
2: Okay. And do you make yours or do you buy it? I buy it. Okay. Do you make it? I do. How do yeah. you do it? Well, you buy kefir grains to start with. So I you see. have like a starter culture. Uh And they're a bit like cottage cheese. If you do have cottage cheese in the States, it's like that kind of spongy stuff. And they they can take over your fridge. I mean, they literally, they grow like some kind of alien creature living in your fridge. And then you end up having to give away huge handfuls of grains. But I was uh, doing some studies and uh, apparently it loses its potency over time. So you can keep your kefir grains going for a month or two, but then you should replace them or refresh them.
0: And then you just add them to milk? Yes. And how long do they have to sit to culture?
2: Um, I leave mine overnight and I, I travel with mine. I have a sachets of powder that I travel. So when I arrive somewhere, if I'm staying somewhere for a few days, either in a hotel or with a friend, I'll grab some milk and a jug and I'll stir it in. And then all the interesting bacteria and yeast that are in the atmosphere will then flourish in that local milk. So I'm then, you're making notes now. I am. Okay. I want, I'm going to get yeah. some of this. What's okay. your favorite one? So I use a brand called Nourish. Nourish Kefir. You can get it online. And uh, they make powders, which are really handy for travel. So you can just slip them into your hand luggage. And then as soon as I arrive somewhere, I'll buy a pint of milk. Or if I'm in a hotel, I'll ask you know them to send up a jug of milk. And I'll leave it on the windowsill. Not refrigerated. Overnight. Not refrigerated because right. you need it to culture. Of course. Uh, and then after I've made it, I might pop it in the fridge. And but then, then I'll, um, I'll have that every day.
0: I'm curious, uh, fat milk, low-fat milk, non skin
2: oh, milk? I don't believe in fat-free, low-fat, full-fat always. I'd like to talk to you about full-fat in the brain. Um, but yes, full-fat and it has to be an animal milk. Um, because right, it, not you, an almond you, 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 milk. Well, of course. You, you, it's, well, almond milk, in my opinion, isn't milk. It's like well, almond juice. No, it's just it's not. that it's white in color. People they should call not it call milk. it milk. No.
0: No. I'm no. glad no. we agree. So tell me about... What about brain? goat milk?
2: Yeah, goat milk is good. I I don't actually like the taste of goat milk.
0: Well, there are some people who are lactose intolerant, of course. Although,
2: did you know this? Sorry to interrupt you. But by the time you have your kefir, you can use whole milk, cow's milk or whatever. By the time it's fermented, it's 99.9% lactose free.
0: Oh, I did not know that.
2: Yeah, so people who are lactose intolerant can almost always have kefir because the lactose is the milk sugar that the bacteria need to thrive and grow and ferment. So if you leave it overnight, it has no lactose in it. Oh, well, good.
0: Well, I was just going to say, for people who like to drink milk yes. and are lactose intolerant, goat milk doesn't have the lactose.
2: Yeah, goat milk is good, and sheep's milk. And goat cheese. I, yeah, I was in Kenya recently, and uh, they were making kefir with camel milk. Oh. Because a lot of the Africans are, are lactose intolerant, the Kenyans. So. What does
0: camel milk taste like?
2: Um, It's kind of a bit camel in that kind of goaty way that you... I mean, you know how goat milk mm-hmm. tastes of the way goats smell. Yeah. yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, quite strong. Uh, well, if you've ever smelt a camel, <laughs> you get that kind I, of that I have smelt a camel, yes. Smelled... <laughs> I've
0: ridden a camel.
2: So, yeah, it's, it's just that kind of slightly gamey.
0: It's a very, yes. very bumpy ride, I'll tell you that.
2: It is, isn't it? Yeah, that kind of backwards and forwards swaying motion.
0: They're a funny animal.
2: But talking about fat, are, am I right in saying that our brains are composed primarily of fat?
0: I don't know about primarily, but... Uh, They have a
2: lot of fat in the brain, and that's why we need to feed it with fat?
0: Well, in particular, uh, so your brain is just a bunch, a collection of electrical circuits, really. Uh, Your neurons are transmitting signals electrically uh, down a, a wire called the dendrite. And that wire, just like the wire in your home, needs to be insulated. The insulating sheath around it isn't mm-hmm. rubber like we have in our home or, or some r- rubberized uh, synthetic equivalent. Mm. It's called myelin, okay. and it's basically a sheath of fat. And it's white in color, which is why we call it white matter. What? The information transmission lines in your brain the signaling is, is white matter white matter tracts. The things that are doing the signaling, where the knowledge is contained, or the thoughts are contained, are the cell bodies, and they're gray. Gray matter, matter. white matter. And to make myelin, you need two things. You need um, omega-3 fatty acids uh, and other fats, um, certain amino acids, and you need B12. Mm. And so fat is good for the brain. Yes. Um, Some fats, of course, are not good for the heart. And Mm -hmm. so uh, you want to choose your fats carefully. Yeah.
2: But certainly fish oils and B12. So that would mean that vegans and plant-based eaters are potentially at risk of having impaired brain health.
0: You can get B12 from dietary sources and you can get omega-3 from some uh, plant-based foods. But it's more difficult. Yes,
2: to get the bioavailability. Yeah. It's just algae, really. You've got to get the yeah. omega-3s. From. But,
0: you know, I'm looking at Sir Paul McCartney, who has mm-hmm. uh, been vegan for decades. Yeah, He's tremendously healthy. I don't know what he's doing to mm. get all this sorted, but yeah. it seems to be working.
2: Yeah, well, I'm sure that he's right on it with all his nutritional extras, things like nutritional yeast, a good source right. of B12. Right, right. He
0: doesn't talk about that much. yeah. yeah.
1: Savings from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9 dollars each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: Interesting. So in terms of aging and food, now we're on the subject of food, what are the sorts of things that we should be eating for brain health? You have touched on the omega-3s, eating proper fish rather than necessarily just selecting the oils um, and b twelve
0: should have your B12 levels checked i would say after about the age of 55 really uh because uh, B12 synthesis can become uh degraded mm-hmm. you do need the B12 for myelin for myelination right. is the process okay and um you shouldn't just go out and take B12 supplements because right. too much B12 is toxic But if you are a candidate for B12, you should take it.
2: Mm. What about vitamin D? Does that have an impact on the brain?
0: It does. uh, For uh, mood and for establishing healthy sleep-wake cycles, Mm -hmm. almost all of us in northern climates should be taking vitamin D if you don't have a condition that contraindicates it.
2: There is a government directive in the UK that everybody should take vitamin D. Yes,
0: and and I've been taking vitamin D as, as my wife for years now. Yeah. And we live in in Los Angeles.
2: Okay, so you've got lots of natural sunlight.
0: Well, we do, but we do have overcast days, and we often... Oh, shame. You know, we're, we're scientists. We spend a lot of time... in.
2: Okay. <laughs> I'm li- living here in the UK, okay. You, you're, you're playing the world's tiniest violin, right? <laughs>
0: um, you know, we, we also, you know, we're scientists. We spend a lot of time indoors, so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, just seems prudent. Yeah, And we have our vitamin D levels checked to make sure as part of our annual blood workups Mm. to make sure we're not overdoing it. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm. So we've talked about food. We've talked about the importance of sleep. Tell me about when we get to sleep. There's a lot of talk in the UK about the blue light coming from screens. We all tend to do that kind of late night scroll through the news feed or check our Instagram or whatever it is, or at least I do. I have to really focus and and be very firm with myself to, to switch my phone off after 9 p.m. Is that a real thing, that that blue light is is somehow affecting, is it the pituitary gland that's affecting our sleep?
0: You know, this really does have the sound of pseudoscience, doesn't mm-hmm. it, or fakery. Well, you
2: tell me, is it real or not? I mean, you
0: hear, oh, I've got a, a blue light. I mean, just that yeah. just sounds like something made up, doesn't it? Yeah. But no, it's a very real thing. Okay. So uh, we evolved uh, over time. Tens of thousands of years, to have basically a lifestyle in which we wake up at the same time every day and go to bed at the same time every day.
2: So we wake waking up with sunrise. Is that what yeah, we're me- meant to be doing? And yeah, going to sleep when it's dark.
0: Yeah, and the sun is a signal. Uh, the blue light, uh, in particular, the blue blue part of the light spectrum. Uh, stimulates the pineal gland to help synchronize your biological clock. You've got a, a clock in your brain. It's actually a series of clocks. Mm-hmm. They're in the back part of the head. Uh, structure happens to be called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, where this clock lives, and its job is to help you um, produce wake up chemicals in the you know when you're going to need them when you wake up uh, produce um, sleepy, sleep inducing chemicals when it's time to go to bed and all, all other things through the day regulating your digestive system it, it helps to produce this clock knows when your meal times normally are so it gets the digestive juices ready um, and the more regular you can be in this the fewer deviations from it the more efficient your body and brain will be the more mm-hmm. clever you'll be and possibly the less likely you'll be to get Alzheimer's.
2: So we're talking about going to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time, but not necessarily following sunrise and sunset because that's a bit antisocial.
0: Right. Right. And so, the role of blue light in this is that, say, in in wintertime, or if, like me, you like to get up at five in the morning before the sun's up, I have a blue (laughs) light in the morning to entrain my brain that this is morning.
2: Is that one of those wake up clocks? Yeah. It it has a light that comes on that wakes you up naturally. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, And I actually wake up before the clock because I'm well synchronized right so my body knows when to wake up but still i have a blue light on my desk as well or uh, or at the kitchen table you know Mm -hmm. 15 minutes of that uh and then um that's waking you up it's like in the winter months if it was
2: dark here right you would you'd be able to do that and you can get these blue light fittings can you like to put on your desk you can get a
0: bulb that goes in a desk lamp i have Mm -hmm. a portable one because i travel a lot it fits Mm -hmm. in my suitcase it's this big Mm. uh and then uh full disclosure yeah i had a i was a product spokesperson for the philips company oh, okay. in eindhoven <laughs> well, and thank they you manu- for... <laughs> they manufacture one of these okay. and they gave me one okay. i think we're uh, allowed that but okay. there are others right uh,
2: <laughs> other types are available <laughs> uh
0: and um they did not pay me to say this Right. No. they did pay me 15 <laughs> years ago to do some work for them okay uh um I know you have very strict rules about this. I know, we're fine. We're fine. Um, Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, but I was to say, so to your point, mm. if you get exposed to blue light too late in the day. And
2: that's coming from our phones, from our iPads. Whenever. Or in the summer
0: months, if the sun doesn't go down to 9 p.m. Right. Uh, 2100. Okay. Uh, yeah. You might have a problem getting to sleep.
2: Well, certainly, I noticed it with my children in the summer, getting them into bed and to sleep. You know, when it's daylight outside, is really but you really a hard don't thing. want to
0: have blue light in your bedroom while you're trying to sleep. So, right. digital clocks or mm-hmm. your cell phone charger, these, yes. uh, these all, you know, the thermostat, all these things yeah. that really the engineers who designed them didn't know better, and they put blue lights in them. Yeah. So when I travel, I actually bring some black. Gaffers tape with me. I
2: do the same thing,
0: and I put it over yeah. the phone and yeah. the clock. And... Absolutely,
2: I unplug all the gadgets. and a yeah. nightmare for anybody coming in the next time. I do try and remember to plug them back in, but I'm sure I miss some. Why well, don't
0: unplug them? I just have gaffers tape, okay, black tape that doesn't leave a residue. Yes, and I, I put it on the displays. Put
2: it over it. Yeah, yeah. really good idea. And I have to sleep with a blackout curtain as well.
0: Absolutely, I do the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, that and that's that's another you don't want artificial lights coming in. So
2: even though our eyes are
0: closed,
2: are we still absorbing some of the light that's around Through the us? skin. <gasps> yeah. That is so fascinating, isn't it? Your
0: skin has photoreceptors. That's why now you tan. What,
2: well, what about the, the screens that you can buy to put on your phones? They, they talk about blue light filters. Would you say they work?
0: I suppose they would. I haven't seen any help. studies on it, but sure. It makes we haven't sense. had the
2: 50 peer-reviewed right. meta-analysis studies, but, I'm afraid. That's right. But it
0: makes sense that they would work, so yeah. yes. And yeah. I, I I, did what a lot of Apple users do. I do not work for Apple. Okay,
2: <laughs> another disclosure. I, uh, but you, you can switch it to night mode, can't yeah, you? Exactly. Your, your, so your screen. It changes
0: the it. whole spectrum of colors. Ah, very but still, it's a bright light, even though it's not blue. Yeah, And if you're you know if if you have a robust suprachiasmatic nucleus right a robust mm-hmm. biological clock sure watch tv look at your computer mm. but as you get older if you find your sleep is disturbed you really shouldn't be looking at any bright device for 2 hours before you go to sleep no. why not just have a conversation with somebody yeah. or read or listen to but music but if you're
2: reading and you've got your bedside light on is that going to have an impact
0: a dim light
2: a dim light yeah
0: Not a fluorescent light.
2: No, no. Interesting. As we age, are there physical changes that are happening in our brains?
0: They are all throughout the lifespan. Right. Not just at the older end. Uh, The brain is constantly changing.
2: Is this what they call plasticity?
0: Neuroplasticity is the process by which new neural connections are formed and grow and that Can happens, we get new
2: connections as we age? We can. How?
0: We, every time you learn something, that's a new neural connection. That's what learning is. is it? It's a new circuit being made. Really? It's
2: physically something happening? Yeah. So we need to be learning new stuff all the time?
0: We do. We need to do it in order to build up what we, people in the field call cognitive reserve or excess capacity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Think of it this way. Um, if, if you were uh, uh, playing golf... And uh, you had a really good score. I don't play golf. I don't know what a good score is. But if you're a really good golfer, on a bad day, you're still going to golf better than most people. You've got this reserve got of ability. Mm-hmm. So if we continue to learn throughout our lives, building new neural pathways all the time, and our brains are conditioned to be doing that. Mm-hmm you might get Alzheimer's or dementia and not notice it for five or ten years because it's peeling away right. uh, excess capacity. Okay,
2: interesting. And are there certain things that are better for that, like languages, for example? Should we be learning a language or um, a physical activity like taking up golf or learning to play tennis? Or uh, What are the best things to give us that capacity?
0: Well, anything that's new. So if, if you've been doing crossword puzzles your whole life and mm. you want to continue doing them because you like it, that's fine, but that's not going to promote brain health right. or neuroplasticity to a large degree. If you've never done crosswords and you start, that would be good. Okay. Learning a new game, meeting new people, traveling, um, attending a course, mm. uh, reading books, right. Um engaging with ideas and and pushing yourself a little bit out of your comfort zone. Listening
2: to podcasts. Exactly. Yeah, on new things. And I mean, so if somebody's listening now and they've never thought about their brain and how it works and uh, this information that's being taken in, is this helping to build new bits in the brain?
0: It's especially doing so if they then talk about it to someone else. Oh, really? There's something called the generation effect. Mm. When you learn something new... You have to use it because during that um, sacred time of sleep, when memories are being consolidated, um, you need to have made the connection of not just taking in the material, but actually repeating it and using it in your own way. So this is, uh, you know, you meet somebody new. Uh, Hi, Liz. Nice to meet you, Liz. Uh, thank you for having me here Liz. Mm-hmm. Now I I'm using your the information of your name. I'm not just allowing it to wash through. Right. Um or um hello Basil. Basil's <laughs> a good dog. Yeah. Who's a good she dog is. Basil. Um <laughs> Uh, there's a dog here in the studio yeah,
2: with us. she's very quiet.
0: <laughs> um, and as to movement uh, and and eye hand coordination, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. a whole other set of pathways. Okay, so and learning
2: to play tennis, if you've never played it before, will be pushing your brain into a new direction.
0: Or or you know, taking lessons. If you've been playing tennis all your life, get with a pro and learn right. some new things. Yes, take up a musical instrument, learn a language. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, language is less physical than the other things that we're talking mm. about. Tennis or playing an instrument, but yeah. golf. The the idea is that there's this whole other set of pathways of you having to plan some physical movement, typically with your hands or fingers or mm-hmm. feet, plan it, um, execute it, and then observe what happened and whether it what you intended to have happen actually happened, and then make adjustments. And then, you know, think ahead, to, well, next time I'm going to have to do this a little bit differently. That's a very, it's a feedback loop. It's a very complex yes. set of things that really stimulate the brain.
2: Really fascinating. In all of this, I have also read um, amongst your work, it, the role of positivity and keeping this kind of very forward going, upbeat, positive mindset. Is, is that important?
0: It's hugely important. Um we can't control what life throws at us, sure uh, we can control how we respond to it yeah we uh, you know we can't control if if we lose our job if if we mm. break up in a relationship, even one we thought was going to last forever, mm. but we can control whether we deal with it uh with a forward look or a backward look, yeah. um spending too much time ruminating on the past, sends us into a downward cycle. It's bad for our immune system. It's bad for our uh, emotional stability. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Of course, I'm not talking about, you know, looking over old photographs and enjoying positive memories. But too much wallowing in negative memories really has a physical detriment. Does it? Um, And anger is a negative emotion.
2: How can we control that? I mean, some people just seem to have that anger gene.
0: Where they is do. that coming from? Well, it, as you say, it's genetic. We have a genetic predisposition. Oh, really?
2: I didn't realize that it was actually yeah. a real thing. Yeah,
0: we, we we have a genetic predisposition towards all of our traits, towards a propensity to anger quickly mm-hmm. or to be a slow burn, yeah. to hold on to anger, to be able to release it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, anything, generosity, curiosity, positivity, yeah. resilience, these all have a genetic basis. But that doesn't mean that they're going to determine you. You can write your own life story. You can change your personality. You can change the way you respond to anger. Can you?
2: Can you really change your personality?
0: You absolutely can. Uh, The entire field of psychotherapy is based on it. Every major religion in the world, thousands of years, is saying you can change. You can become more compassionate, more generous, experience more gratitude. All the major religions uh mm. teach you to wake up in the morning and be thankful for yeah. what you have
2: gratitude is such a key word, isn't it
0: and it's part of positivity isn't it yeah
2: uh,
0: the the real if you had to to um, put the key to happiness in one sentence, it would be be grateful for what you have not uh, don't uh, f- um, be upset and focus yeah. on what you don't have
2: yes. Yes, focus on your glass half full. And not I have a empty. friend named
0: Alan Simpson who was a senator in the U.S. He's 88, 89 mm. now. And he says, anger corrodes the vessel in which it is carried.
2: Yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah, it is. You can almost imagine it, this kind of acidic substance burning a hole in stuff.
0: So you ask how? Yeah, that's the the question. How do you change the way you deal with anger or stress or hatred or mistrust or negativity? Mm. Um, There's no one way for everybody. Um, uh, No one way works for everyone. Mm -hmm. To some extent, we have to find our way by reading magazines, listening to podcasts. We uh, love magazines. We love podcasts. (laughs) Finding inspirational people.
2: Yeah.
0: uh, Being inspired by art. Some Mm -hmm. people change their lives. I'll give you a quick rundown. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people change their lives through art. They read a a piece of literature or literary nonfiction, and it inspires them. I'm going to change. And they do. They stick to it. Uh, Education. Some people do it through therapy. Psychotherapy works. Not for everybody, but uh, and not every kind of therapy works. For every person, you have to find the right match. Mm-hmm. But you can change your personality and the way you deal with life through therapy. Mm. Sometimes not even long term. I'm not talking five years or five times a week. I mean, right. maybe six visits with a cognitive behavioral therapist yeah, who just CBT, gives you tools. That right, the, exactly.
2: You'd say that's the key.
0: That is for some people. Yeah. Meditation. Mm. In preparing the book, I, uh, the Dalai Lama invited me to come out and spend some time oh, with him in the Himalayas in, yeah. in Dharamshala. And he he believes that meditation is the best way, a particular kind of meditation, mm-hmm. uh, is the best way to change your personality. And he practices what he preaches.
2: And what do you say to that as a neuroscientist? What is the impact on meditation? Do you, do you
0: buy it? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Dalai Lama has sent over a bunch of his monks, master meditators, mm-hmm. uh, and we've scanned their brains. And what happened? Well, we've seen that... Uh, physical changes in the brain really certain areas relating to positivity and compassion become larger other areas related to fear and negativity become smaller fascinating the connectivity between areas that are related to positivity becomes greater so that one positive thought activates another more efficiently
2: and how long do you have to meditate for to see those changes
0: I think that that's the big question. I'm asking it. I, <laughs> do I, you have the answer? I don't answer? think we know. I think okay. some people can find benefits within a few weeks. Uh, other people, it takes a few years.
2: But I mean, do you have to do like five minutes? Oh, can you do 10 minutes? Is yeah, it half an hour?
0: We don't know. The Dalai Lama does four hours.
2: Well, that's just not practical, is it? I mean, wife, am I going to do it for seven minutes in the morning and see a difference? My
0: wife does 15 minutes.
2: Okay. And do you?
0: I'm not a meditator, but I take naps. And a 15-minute nap for me has that sort of restorative ability. Really? It allows me to let go. And what time of day would you nap? Almost every day at 1 in the afternoon, I nap for 15 minutes. Really? I have a sofa in my office. Mm-hmm. I put up the Do Not Disturb sign.
2: Right. And do you have to set an alarm, or do you just naturally, no. you'll just literally switch off for 15 minutes? Yeah, that's you, are me. you actually sleeping?
0: I am, yeah, but that's me. Mm-hmm. I, I, I go to sleep right away. I wake up right away. I'm kind of mm-hmm. weird that way, but, you know, Other people nap for an hour and a half, now and then. Uh, But uh, yoga, Mm. I I have friends that find that yoga works. Uh, Like I say, there's no one path. And I have to say, there's a role here for medication. Mm. Um, Some people who uh, are angry uh, may be angry because they have a neurochemical imbalance, in which they're not able to reset their emotions. They're not able to rebound. And the so-called antidepressants, yeah. SSRIs, and the whole family of drugs like that, yes. even in small doses, not the large dose you might give somebody who's suicidal or super, yeah. you know, hasn't gotten out of bed in two months kind of depression, uh, what we would call a subclinical dose, can make a, a, a difference. Uh, uh, you know, like night, night and day, a wholesale difference in how you deal with anger. Mm. Things just don't bother you. Wow.
2: But aren't we just numbing the emotions and, and the brain? I mean, I'd love to talk to you about antidepressants because there just seems to be an epidemic of antidepressant prescribing, certainly here in the UK. And Well, this
0: has been a longstanding argument that Joni Mitchell and I have been having really? for years. Uh, and, and I think... She's finally come around, uh, but she had uh, a life changing event. Uh, mm. She had an aneurysm, and mm-hmm. that might be part of the change in her thinking. But I remember we've been friends for some time, and we'd worked on some music together. Yeah. And um, actually, uh, just as an aside, um, she has been a very, a very dear friend, and uh, we connected musically at first, and. Mm-hmm. She was a big fan of my songwriting, my amateur songwriting, the songs oh, I always wrote but never played for anybody, yeah. and played them for her, and she encouraged me to put out a record of my own material, which That's I released really cool. just six weeks ago, really? thanks to her. Oh yeah. my
2: goodness, congratulations.
0: Um, but the argument we had was, i we'd gotten together for dinner about 15, 20 years ago, and um I said, I'm so angry, you know, this person at work is undermining me and this yeah. they, they're telling lies about me to the granting agencies so I can't get funding for my research and I'm so angry and I just don't know how to control my anger. And she was furious. She was angry at me. She right. said, why the hell would you want to do that? Why would you want to control your emotions? Well, think about it. Joni Mitchell makes her living yes. expressing emotions. Yeah. And as a singer, she's got to have at her fingertips the ability to take you through five different emotions Mm. in six words of a song. And she can do that, as any great singer or actor can do. Um, And actors and musicians are often what uh, scientists or uh, bankers would call emotionally unstable because they have these huge ups and downs. uh, And they don't want to control them. And I say, well, you know, yeah, but you know, I, I, I need to live my life and and I find you know, these extreme emotions rather crippling. You know, I can't sleep and I, you know, they upset my stomach and I, yeah. I I'm not measured. I, I start, you know, being cross with shopkeepers and I don't want to be that way. Joni is famously shop, cross with shopkeepers. Is she really? So um uh but she's she she's mellowed. She she's Um, just naturally with age and uh, such, and um, not through pharmaceutical intervention. And Mm. um, I don't now control my emotions through pharmacy, although I would, if I thought that was the answer, I would have no Mm -hmm. qualms about it. Um, I just take a nap.
2: Right. Yeah. And what about children? Because the developing brain, we're understanding more about the childhood disorders, things like ADD, ADHD. Uh, you really, well,
0: you're really covering everything here.
2: Well, I'm, I have you here now, so I'm like going to, going to hopefully get my money's worth because I'm just fascinated to know why we seem to be. Is it just that we're more aware of these things, or are there changes in our environments or our genetic makeup that's making these conditions more prevalent?
0: Well, like with the over-prescribing of um, uh, antidepressants, which I think is a real thing. I think mm-hmm. you know, far more people are taking them than are benefiting. That doesn't mean that some people won't some. benefit. Mm-hmm. But same with ADD, vastly uh, over-diagnosed, over-prescribed. Um, yeah. um, we, we use ADD instead of parenting. Right. Are we, I'm yeah. sorry, ADD yeah, drugs, we drugs, use drugs yeah. instead of parenting. What
2: can we do for our youngsters to give them the healthy brains that they need to, to learn and to get a good start in life?
0: You know, there's a lot of talk about, especially with climate change, what kind of world are we leaving our children? Mm. And I think the conversation we need to have is what kind of children are we leaving our world? Mm. And it's, it comes down to parenting and teaching and grandparenting. Yeah. And I think we need to reward children for their curiosity. Every four-year-old is curious. Try putting one to bed. Yes. Why? It's yes. your bedtime. Why? Why? Well, because uh, you have to go to school in the morning. Why? Why? Because you need a good education. Yeah. Why? <laughs> so you don't end up you don't end up like my brother-in-law, who's you right. know, jobless. So, you know. <laughs> Why? Yeah, uh but we, we kind of beat it out of most children, mm-hmm. and um, scientists and artists somehow managed to not have it beaten out of them. We're always asking why and how, and we're curious. Other people are too, but um, I I just won some sort of lottery that the family I was born into encouraged me to be curious. Yes. Uh, and yeah, I was kind of a hyperactive kid. mm mm-hmm. And I had to take time outs, but nobody ever talked about drugging me to make right. me sit still. Mm. Um, and uh, um, I think we need to be attentive to the idea that children are all different. Even as you know, as, as a mother, mm. one year olds are different. Oh, yeah. Six month olds, from the start, some children are more active, some are more outgoing, social, mm. um, some are more temperamental. Um, I'm not saying we need to embrace those differences and allow extreme behaviors. I'm not saying that at all. Children need boundaries. They do. Mm -hmm. They absolutely do. But just because one child learns one way or is interested in one set of things doesn't mean another will be. And so we need to pay more attention to the individual inside the child.
2: Yeah, yeah. You touched on social uh, interaction, and I'd just like to kind of finish perhaps by touching on that and the role of sociability and loneliness. You know, we, there is an aging population here, particularly in the UK, many of whom are very isolated. And, and there lonely. are
0: more people over the age of 75 in the UK than at any time in history. That's
2: just astonishing, isn't it? And too many people are being isolated and, and being alone. What is the impact of that on the brain?
0: We should distinguish solitude from loneliness.
2: Right. Solitude is the positivity of I need some time out. I'm going to enjoy this peace Mm -hmm. and do my meditation.
0: And loneliness (laughs) is an emotional feeling. Right. It's not a physical state. Solitude is a physical state. I'm by myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Loneliness is an emotional state. Right. Uh, And you can be lonely in a crowded room, at a party, at a family reunion. Yeah. Um, Loneliness is a killer. It's one of the top predictors really? of poor health and early death. Really? And it often comes from isolation, but not always. Mm. Uh, older adults who are given things to do that they find meaning in, even if they're doing it alone, aren't mm. necessarily lonely. Right. Especially if you've got a, happy, ha- a healthy, active mind, you yes. might immerse yourself in a hobby or a craft.
2: Mm. So you've just got that solitude, but you're not feeling that emotion of loneliness.
0: Yeah. Now, the newest research on this is really fascinating. My colleague, Barb Fredrickson, we were at Stanford together. Uh, She's now at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She's found that what she calls micro connections, just talking to people throughout the day that you don't necessarily know, talking to strangers, Mm -hmm. um, has the largest impact on ameliorating loneliness. Really? So uh, you're standing in line at the grocery store. Yeah. Do you call them that here?
2: Yeah, supermarket. Supermarket. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you
0: just talk to the person next in line, or you talk to the checkout clerk yes. if it's not an automated. Yeah. Uh, or like me, you go through the automated and something doesn't go right and the clerk comes over yeah, to help to you. Help. you know, how's it going? And you're having you know, that conversation. Yes. Those micro-conversations, even if they last less than a minute, talking to your postal carrier, Yes. Uh, talking to somebody at the bus stop or next to you on the tube, Mm. those help you, uh, they, they generate positive neurochemicals, they generate positive connectivity in the brain, they uh, dramatically reduce loneliness. Even people who say, oh, I'm not that kind of person, I don't want to do that, that's not me, I'm not outgoing, I'm shy, it makes me uncomfortable. When they do it, they're astonished at how it makes them feel. Isn't fail.
2: that fascinating? So you don't have to have create lasting friendships with people. You're not talking about kind of going down the drains of... You know, insightful conversations. It's just that, hi, how are you? Isn't it great? The sun is shining. Or, I wish I brought an umbrella because it's wet. Or, you know, just those little micro snippets of
0: Talk to your neighbors. If you own a dog and you walk the dog, yes, you talk dog to... walking is great, right. isn't it? Because right. it does
2: strike up. In my neighborhood, there are
0: non dog walkers who are walking. And, you know, it, it turns out that the quality of of life is also dramatically influenced by simply whether you know your neighbors and talk to them when you see them in your neighborhood whether you're in a city or in in suburbs um i think that what's going on here although barb frederickson doesn't attribute to this i'm just speculating here Mm. is that we have this very ancient evolutionary fear of being left out
2: right we're talking about is it fomo you know fear of missing out
0: yeah and, and particularly FOMO when it comes to social groups. There's this in-group and there's this out-group.
2: Yeah, are you an insider? Or think you back to when that? you were
0: 16 years old. Were yeah. you with the cool kids and were they leaving you out and what did they think about you? Um, and we have that going back tens of thousands of years. And you walk around the city and you see all these people and they're talking and they're laughing and mm. I'm left out. I'm mm. not part of that. But you talk to somebody in the street, oh, I'm part of the fabric of society. I'm an insider.
2: Fascinating. Dan, I could talk to you all day, but I know that you have a really busy media schedule. I'm really so thrilled that you found the time to come and join us and unpack your great brain. I'm grateful
0: to you for sharing your great brain. Uh, brain. (laughs)
2: Bless you. Thank you. Thank you very much for being with us. And that's it for today's episode. As always, you will find all the links and the resources mentioned on today's show over on lizislewellbeing.com. There you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter packed with wellbeing wisdom and more tips for aging joyously. Huge thanks to all of you who've left us such lovely reviews. It really does help others to find the show. So thank you. And until the next time, go well. Bye-bye. Wellbeing show is presented by me liz earl with production by amaryllis earl and harry trevithick at heart dialogue with thanks to my producer ellie smith and guest booker millie de la Marignere.
1: planning for your next
2: trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more